Hello! You've just caught me on the set of 1980s Blankety Blank. Uh, I'm, I've travelled back in time to present that show. It's a very big break for me. Plus, uh, time travel's been invented, but we are mainly using it to put 21st century people in 20th century game shows. But yeah, it's very confusing for Annika Rice, I have to say, who uh, doesn't know who I am in the 1980s, obviously, because uh, even if she knew me, I would have been... A teenager. It's crazy. Anyway, welcome to another episode of Rahalastafa this week with the amazing and super brainy historian Bethany Hughes. Um, if you're watching this on video, uh, I am crystal clear with my HD camera and Bethany Hughes looks like she is living in some kind of swamp because uh, her camera is not as good and that is the way round you want it you want to see me very clearly and Bethany Hughes like some kind of ghost from the past who's managed to somehow get here to our future from ancient Greece uh, she's amazing it's a brilliant show regardless of the video quality uh, thanks to everyone for supporting the Stone Clearer Kickstarter which amazingly hit its target last weekend thank you very much we are doing another one which will start imminently for self-playing snooker with an amazing Punani album of 40 stickers that you can collect and swap um, of all the 32 self-playing snooker players, plus loads of stats, all sorts of things. It's going to be amazing. And some other brilliant rewards on top of that as well. Um, go to rehearsedbook.co.uk slash kickstarter and that should be starting up at some point the week of transmission of this podcast. And very excitingly, all the profit from that podcast will go to the Save Live Comedy Charity, which is attempting to put some money back into clubs so that there will be some clubs open when comedy can return, if that is ever allowed. I mean, obviously, there's stuff online, but could we call this comedy? I don't know if we can. I don't know if we're allowed under present government regulations. Uh, so thank you. Please do support that if you want to help live comedy. And uh, it's they're fantastic rewards. I think you will enjoy them if you're a fan of self-playing snooker or have enjoyed the summer of sport that I've given you here on Twitch. Uh, and um, Self-Play Snooker is now going uh, weekly. Me 1 versus Me 2 Snooker. Uh, as is Ali and Herring's Twitch of fun, of course. Don't miss out on that. And Rahalaspa still being recorded every Wednesday at 8pm on twitch.tv slash rkherring. Do tune in. It's getting ever more professional, at least at my end. Let's sit back, relax and enjoy Rahalaspa. With me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Bethany Hughes. Hello, please welcome a man who has... Oh, arguing with his wife about eggs. It's Richard Herring. Please, hello, everyone. Welcome to another uh, live-streamed episode on Twitch of... Uh, Richard Herring's Lopping Shells Tops Off podcast. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about how to eat softboard eggs on this podcast. That is why I've named renamed it that. Though I was talking to the cleaners on uh, London Underground the other day, the ones who uh, cleaned off all of Banks's graffiti, they knew what they were doing. They they did it for me. They knew that he'd nicked my idea for the Bristol statue. Someone else has nicked his idea and and done it. And it's my idea anyway. Anyway, the cleaners call it Rahalastapa, so I don't know if that's going to catch on. Um, uh, all very exciting, having a lovely time. Uh, it's July as we record. I turned 53 uh, at the weekend, which was uh, quite an unpleasant experience. Actually, it was a lovely party, and I got uh, my annual call from Barry Cryer, who was meant to be a guest on this podcast last year and, and then didn't do it, and I hope to have him on the 
podcast on the future, but he's a very nice uh, elderly man who rings up young comedians on their birthdays, uh, checks how they are and tells them a joke. Uh, his joke, which I won't do justice to, that it was a topical joke, um, said just before the lockdown, uh, some people were lucky to get a flight back to England from, the, from abroad and they were in the streets and they were very excited. The, the captain came on the, uh, the intercom and said, uh, the flight will be arriving at Heathrow at 6.30 p.m. I am currently working from home. That was Barry Cryer's uh, joke that I got for my birthday, so I thought I'd share that with you. I didn't do it justice. He did it much better than me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I've, got a, I've got a lot to tell you about boiled. Before we start, I've got to talk to you about uh, boiled eggs because we had boiled soft-boiled eggs for breakfast the other day, and we don't do that too often. It was my birthday breakfast, actually, and I hadn't realised until quite recently the way my wife opens boiled eggs is a blasphemy and against all God and nature. Uh, this is why you should really get to know someone properly before you marry them. And me and my wife only had four years of courting, including two years of living together. And that was not enough time. I should have waited until I knew her properly. Marry in haste, repent at leisure. Uh, I know there's a bit in Gulliver's Travels about a society at war over which way up a boiled egg should be eaten, but I don't care about that. That's ridiculous. It's crazy to go to war over something that trivial. What my wife does is way worse and I think justifies a nuclear strike rather than what the way to eat a boiled egg, right? It doesn't matter which way up. You just lop the top off and then you're in, right? My wife, she taps it with a spoon like it's a hard boiled egg, peels and starts peeling off all the bits individually. Uh, but it isn't a hard boiled egg. It's a soft boiled egg. And she's doing this and all the bits of little eggs are, are ending up on a plate where her soldiers are and, in, you know, in the getting, getting in the egg. Uh, I know you're wondering how you avoid getting all those bits caught up in when you're dipping in your in your mouth and the answer is you don't she's insane and yet i'm married to her and now there's no way out of this um i think i'd have the strength to get through all of this but the problem is that without me noticing she has taught my kids that that is the correct way to eat a boiled egg she's passed this curse on to another generation they won't listen to me and do it the proper way like i tell them and i can't prevent them uh how, i'm not i can't prevent them ending up with a mouthful of eggshell if i was a younger man i would just leave this broken family and try again and meet a woman who eats soft boiled eggs correctly but it's too late Perhaps uh, I can uncondition them, or at least the youngest one, uh, but I don't think so. All I can do to try to entreat to any of you who aren't married not to make the same mistake I did, please use your courting time properly. I also discovered on my birthday that my wife didn't know what flying ants day was. There was flying ants coming out of a step at the back of my mother-in-law's house. Nobody in my wife's family knew that that was a thing. And they go, what's flying ant day? What are flying ants? They'd never seen them before. They didn't know there was a special day that happened. I'm pretty sure my wife's an alien from another planet. Um, and uh, she's been sent for, to breed with the prime specimen of masculinity on planet Earth. And that is me. Um, all right, we'll save that for I've got another routine. I'm going to save that for another time because, you know, I'm, I'm full of ideas. It's all going very well. Uh, if you're watching on Twitch, remember, you can uh, subscribe on Twitch. If you're with Amazon Prime, you can subscribe for free and give me money without any cost to yourself. It's crazy, but please do it. Uh, you can become a monthly badger. If you want to give me some money, go com slash badges. Let's crack on. We've got um, a fantastic guest for you today. She is probably best known for playing Maddie in Dirty Linen in the Burton Taylor Rooms at Oxford in 1987. That's why we're all here. If you'd seen her in that, you that would be why you were here. I, believe me, uh, it was amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the historian, Bethany Hughes. Here she is. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. Good. And horrified that you remember that. <laughs> how, how could I not? <laughs> how could I not remember? Oh. It was the most... 
it's one of the most incredible experiences of my life. I was also in that play with you, although I was in the play within a play. Yes. But you spent, well, my memory of it is, um, well, my only memory of it, of, of, of anything apart from my bit, which was independently, was you coming in the first dress rehearsal where you were dressed in just underwear and corset and underwear yes. and stockings and suspenders. Yeah. And I was a very innocent 19-year-old uh, boy at this time. I believe when I met you, I was still a virgin. After after we'd finished the play, I don't think I was a virgin anymore. But uh, Nothing to do with me. It was nothing to do with you. Um, but I was too embarrassed to even uh, look at you, but it's still somehow the image is still seared on my brain. You were very good. Did you, did you do any more... Uh, Acting, Acting. After, after. I, oh yeah, I did. I did loads. My, my. Um. Oh, I honestly, I'll say of all things to remember. We should just explain why I turned up in the dress rehearsal in a corset and suspenders. It's because that is what was I was supposed to be wearing in the play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not saying it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just to yeah. kind of grab a bit of attention <laughs> before we went. It was on. you were. It was a. It was a play about the Foreign Office or something like that, wasn't it? Or the government, and you were yeah. a secretary who came. And it's a very old-fashioned. It's a Tom Stoppard play. Tom Stoppard, but it's weirdly feminist, isn't it? Because it? it's going yes, like I that's that how is, you yeah. how everybody thought of secretaries. So we just did. I remember thinking, this is so modern. This is so kind of fresh. And I didn't realise it was actually quite old fashioned when I did it. Uh, acting, <laughs> well, it's interesting because my mum and dear departed dad um, were both actors. So I grew up in right. that in that world. So I knew that although it's an incredibly important value, and I have to say, you know, I really do love actors and what they do is amazing to share stories and ideas and other other kind of ways of being with the world. I do also remember that my life was spent with us basically sitting around the kitchen table drinking cups of tea because there wasn't much work available. So, you know, we eked out the cups of tea. But it was fun, you know, what a way to grow up. So we just talked. That's all we did is we just talked and talked and talked and they they, they hoped they would get work. So, So I loved acting. I did think, though, it probably wasn't. The, the the most sensible way to um so I, so I chose to be a historian which of course is an incredibly yes. you know not <laughs> lucrative way to, to to spend your life um and it was also it was a well, yeah, sorry, oh, I was going to say it was really um it was really do you remember what did you what, what were you studying at uni I studied history, although oh. I just I just did comedy and, uh, yes. and acting the whole way through. Yes, so, yeah, I didn't really do. So we should know that because because we obviously should have been in the library together. I think <laughs> you might have been in the year above me. With this, we're the same uh, actual age, but I had a year off, uh. so I think you were in the year above me. Uh, so I think we probably did. You know, I, you wouldn't have seen me in the library. I went to one lecture in the entire time. Did I you? Was there did you? And copied other people's essays every week and gave uh, my tutor must have known. You're very wicked. I, like literally copied them word for word, and then uh, I, I got away with it. I don't know how. Yes. Uh, but uh, it was a weird, that the when we did Dirty Linen, I think it was the first play I did in uh, in Oxford. Uh, but the week I did that, I missed my granddad's funeral because no. it was at the same time. So my granddad died, and the same week I lost my virginity finally. And it was very late; I was very nearly twenty. Yeah. Uh, not it was it wasn't connected to my granddad dying. I don't think it was a pity shag. I don't think the person knew my granddad had died, but it was. Yeah, so it was quite a big week that that week or that ten days where I lost my granddad, lost my virginity, and appeared in a play with you in your 
and your underwear in, my, in a red corset. <laughs> so I became a man. <laughs> I became in a man in every way. <laughs> what that is a well, you were very good then. You never let on about it. I don't remember there being sort of you know tears and hankies in the in the, in the backstage. But what I was going to say is, do you remember though? If we were, was that for the losing my virginity or losing my granddad? Both, both, all of them. Um, <laughs> there was hankies. hankies. <laughs> let's go back to history away from okay, sorry. But, but do you remember then it was really unfashionable history I remember people going you are mad you know you're going to end up in this sort of dead-end job studying these dead-end people who are dead and dead languages and it was very it was very uncool history yeah then, so we had to really fight I think it was almost I wondered about it a bit actually I reckon I think it might be because of the year 2000 sort of vaguely approaching and people yeah. all thought all the answers lay in the future and the past right. was under. Do you know what I mean? There was this sort of Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was almost like a bad smell if you said that you studied history. So um, um, anyway, <laughs> I stuck at it, stuck at the uh, Yes. Travel. Were you doing uh, ancient history at university? Yeah, ancient modern, yeah. So I just did, I didn't do ancient. So I don't, I, I, I'm quite interested in Rome and I was I'm kind of interested, I was, I was very interested in archaeology and I love Pompeii, which I know you've been to many times. Mm. Uh, and are doing you do, are you doing a new show about Pompeii coming up? We just yeah we on... just well it's actually just just gone out. Um, but oh, yeah okay. we yeah so we were looking at some of the new the new digs there. But I am going back yeah. so yeah, yeah. No, I do love it. But yeah I don't really know it. I mean you know it's been very interesting uh, listening to your audio book and watching your show because I don't know very much about ancient Greece uh, beyond that they had sex with little boys back then that was the that was the way they got their kicks is that true that they had sex with uh, boys well they did have the there's lots of male you know yeah. man on man and man on yeah. boy loving they, it's disputed whether it was um penetrative sex or whether it was intercrural between the thighs this is this big okay. debate that goes on um but they were definitely a lot of people are using that excuse in show business oh, at the moment God, don't <laughs> don't but it was i mean it was very you know it was completely it was sort of this institutionalised idea of the older male bestowing wisdom, you know, and glory and learning on the on the younger boy. But but we're not talking about tiny boys, you know, they they no. um but yeah, I mean it was there was just a completely different attitude to sex and sexuality and the point of sex and and what it was. And it was a lot more, you know, what I love about kind of exploring those worlds is that we think we're so modern and that we've we have all the ideas and of course everybody's they they had those ideas 3000 years ago so the whole non-binary sexuality thing yeah that was huge in the very early ancient world in the bronze age world particularly this notion yeah. that you could be both a man and a woman at the same time and you know we were all a bit male and all a bit female and they just knew that was the case and and went with it so it's taken us kind of 3000 years to catch up and work yes. out that that might be a possibility well, that's the fact that your book, your latest book, I know you've done several books. I've been listening to the audio book, Venus and Aphrodite, A Biography of Desire. It's, it's again, it's, it, it sort of is about that, isn't it? The, what's interesting, I think, about that book is I thought, well, how can you write a book about something that isn't, you know, Venus isn't real, that's yeah. just made up. But actually, of course, via the gods and the way that gods changed over time and the just the way they're depicted, you learn so much about the societies that the gods were, you know, that were worshipping those gods and the way that they were changing. Uh, and it is, it's absolutely fascinating book. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the really interesting thing about it, the way that, um, uh, but both the sort of relation between the sexes, but also sexuality has changed mm. through, through that time. 
and the, you know I, this is something I'm quite interested in the sort of prehistory of sex and and uh, and the way that the early gods were all were often female and then it sort of got to a point where there was male and female and then we got into these uh, monotheistic gods where the men were all in charge but that sort of was happening through the Greek the ancient Greek times wasn't it that it sort of it, we arrived at Zeus being yeah, the main god when it had all been a quite an even yeah, male well, and female. Yeah, Zeus is a kind of a latecomer, really. So we've got this idea exactly as you said, this sort of Olympian pantheon and Zeus on top and king of the gods, and then these other smiting gods all around in different you know in different cultures. But that is not how it starts. So Zeus starts off. I love the fact our earliest examples of Zeus are these tiny little sort of puny figurines, and he's kind of raising his fists, sort of trying to be almighty, um, because it was definitely I don't what. I don't think that there was uh, a kind of matriarchy in this. People sometimes talk about this kind of proto-feminist wonderland with women in charge. And I I think that absolutely wasn't the case. And I don't think there was a single mother goddess. Um, But exactly as you said, it was a lot more mixed up. And you know, a lot more surprising with, with Aphrodite. We think when we say Venus or Aphrodite, we think of this kind of beautiful, wafty, blonde creature in a kind of pink, like bit chocolate box, pretty, basically. I mean, if you look at the uh, the early Aphrodites, she's uh, a war goddess. She's a goddess of death as well as of life. The kind of very early versions of her from Cyprus are these weird creatures that have got a, basically a penis for a head and uh you know lovely i've got a question about that one of my emergency questions but yeah carry oh, was on. It? Oh, yeah well, <laughs> well i mean you know aren't they everybody's got to google the lady of lemba now we're talking about him her yeah. i mean there's the most extraordinary images and with little eyes you know on the top of the penis so and that is aphrodite so she, again so she was sort of male and female and all about fertility but all about i think she's all about um kind of what we do with desire, us wanting what we haven't got. And quite often in the ancient world, that was wanting somebody else's village or territory. So it meant that you had to kind of rustle up an army or warriors to go and uh, attack it. So it sort of makes sense that that desire thing, that female desiring nurse was actually very um aggressive in the in the uh, early uh, kind of early times of of civilization. But you're right, those gods and goddesses, you know, they were there was much more equity they were very the the female the goddesses were very very feisty and it's only later when we get kind of towards the end of the bronze age where there's a sort of systematic thing that basically we get greedy i reckon as a you know what we are as humans we we always want what we haven't got and so we sit in like Tyrins or Mycenae or Argos and we think we've got this and it's an amazing wouldn't it be lovely if we had over the hill as well and if you're going to get over the hill as well then you need to have an army so suddenly it makes much more sense to worship a warrior god and to really kind of elevate warrior status so in, that's that's about 600 years of human history <laughs> condensed into <Yeah>. six sentences <laughs> but but you do then see that and you see the goddesses getting demoted you see women in society who had a lot of power and status and standing becoming slightly less influential um and i and so i do think it you know all of that is is it's not about belligerence but it is about wanting more and the easiest way to have what you want is to to go and nick it from somebody with your soldiers sure. And I think it's because people look back to obviously Stone Age man, and the the image that people have is 
you know, the men going out and hunting and bonking women over the head and, you know, taking them and the women collecting berries. But I think, I mean, it's not, there's no real evidence, but we don't know for sure. But it seems likely from observing hunter-gatherer tribes now and from these this evidence, this sort of God evidence, that it was a much more equal society before all this happened, before well, agriculture and war and everything. Yeah, well, I mean, you certainly it. see kind of in the bone evidence, you see a lot of the women and children, they have often kind of as much evidence of attack as the men. So, you know, they're definitely uh, being out there, being pushed out to to fight as, as well as you exactly. They're not just sitting there and farming. Um, I mean, you know, again, I think we can can be it's a real danger isn't it with history that you find what you want to find and we've always got to not do that thing oh isn't that interesting these gorgeous strong feisty feisty women there they are um but it makes sense doesn't it if you've got tiny populations as well of course 50 percent of them i.e the women they're going to be put to use in the best way for that uh, society and often that is going to be to defend them or to or to you know or to attack in order to to get food so yeah so it's a really I I love looking at these goddesses because kind of by definition they're immortal. So it's like they take you by the hand and lead you back through these thousands of years um, of history. And forgive me if there's anybody who's a goddess worshipper who's listening to this, but I do think they're made up. So what the ancients basically do is they take something that's important and they like desire and they give it a name and a face like Aphrodite or Venus yeah. and then that is the that is the it's the idea that's being worshipped rather than the deity and I think the point you make in the book as well which is great is that you know in those days it wasn't like people there were people walk around going well actually I don't believe in this I'm an atheist it was it was almost not really a choice it was the only way to make sense of their world and you and life was so short and uh, and brutal and you know that, that that this that these gods were sort of necessary to kind of keep people going through to to make sense of their world. They needed to think, why am I getting these feelings of lust? You know, I'm in a relationship and I'm lusting after someone else. Oh, it's because I've been yes. enchanted by this this goddess or whatever. Yes. You know, so it's yes. well. There is when a you, lot of that. You, there is a lot of that yeah. because I'm like, oh, it wasn't me. It was <laughs> I really, it's good. I really didn't want to play. It was all to do with Venus, who's sitting over there. Um, but no, you're you're completely right. I mean, the Greeks um, kind of famously don't really have another word uh, for religion. For them, the gods and goddesses and demigods and spirits are everywhere and in everything. You know, in every fruit that ripens on the tree and every breath of wind. So they're they're asking a Greek if he or she believe in the gods would be sort of like asking them if they believed in the sea. You know, they they were as real. Later, there are atheos, atheists, it's a Greek word, it's an ancient Greek word, which means people who sort of, you know, explored what that was. But definitely early on, there's this much more kind of mystical animist um, idea of the world where, where, where the supernatural is as um, important and prevalent and real as the as the natural. Yeah, and, it, and it's and it's just fascinating. I think the way the way once you've got that broad scope of history, though, the way those gods uh, change in order to accommodate, you know, uh, both uh, taking over different countries and different civilizations, but also to reflect the changes in society. So the the uh, it's a I mean, it's a very interesting journey. This Aphrodite to Venus to you know, and 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 obviously into Rome with that we take her, and you get a bit more evidence, uh, and she's become this glamorous almost. 
it's almost like the port. She's almost the porn hub of the yeah, she, of the Roman world. Yeah, well, she with is the, with the statues. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. So that you've got this very sort of potent Bronze Age goddess who you would have feared and you would have absolutely kind of insulted at your peril. Then she has this interesting kind of phase where she goes through, as I said, that she's both male and female. So you have Aphrodite with a beard. In and a lot of the figurines in Cyprus, so beautiful breasts and this kind of fantastic bushy, bushy beard. Um, uh, then she's this kind of potent creature for the for the Greeks, but as you say, it's sort of slowly from about the fourth century BCE onwards. She basically starts to lose her clothes. So there's that very famous um, Venus, a bit like Maddie in <laughs> Tom Stoppard. <laughs> yes. um, you should have based it all around that. Exactly. That, that Obviously, that was what was actually going on. But um, but no, she does. So she suddenly becomes this kind of naked, rather than a kind of fabulously proud naked goddess. She's this goddess, the famous um, Cnidian Aphrodite. So she's sort of you. Do you, do you know what? Do you, well. I'm trying. I'm trying to just gesticulate. To <laughs> yeah. Almost be a Canadian Aphrodite, but um, <laughs> you know she's sort of half covering her breasts and half covering her vulva, but it's sort of covering and yet pointing. You know, it's sort of. Yeah. I'm a bit ashamed of this, but look, this is isn't this lovely what I'm ashamed of? And it's really from that moment onwards, as you say, that she becomes an excuse for for kind of flesh on show um, and sculpting these kind of 3D images of the naked female form. And then the Romans, being Romans, keep that. So they make her naked, but they give her uh, her armour back. So she's sort of every male fantasy. So she's naked <laughs> with a helmet and a sword. You know, that's that's how the Romans often liked her. So you, that's how the empire got so big. That's why that's why it took over the world. Well, they knew what they knew what men were like. Well, and Venus, they think of Venus as their mother, don't they? If you think that this right. this whole story about Venus giving birth to Aeneas, who then you know his descendants go on Romulus and Remus go on to found Rome. So for the Romans, Venus, this sort of fighting naked, swordy goddess, is the mother of of Rome itself. Yeah, again, very like Pornhub. That's what most of Pornhub is. Is uh, I wouldn't know. Is no, nor would I. I mean, I'm guessing. Um, and uh, let's. I'll, I'll move on to the TV show in a sec. But I, I, it's a. I highly recommend this uh, Venus and Aphrodite: A Biography of Desire. The audio book, which you read yourself, which I always love, oh, is yeah. fantastic. Uh, I just. I, I love. Uh, so the love of the little details of history. I'm very interested in archaeology, but what, what I quite like is throughout this book, you you keep on mentioning little fragments of poems and plays that have made it from ancient Greece on. You know, in in often just on bits of wrapping up of other books or just little fragments found in Egypt or the desert or whatever. It's, it's, it's that's sort of so fascinating to me that like a, a passage or a poet, a bit of a poem yeah. can exist. And then you can still work out who wrote it or where it came from or have an idea of what it was. And yeah. Well, absolutely. Do you have it? Go on, sorry. What I was going to say is kind of famously the one, the examples of that are these beautiful, beautiful little fragments of Sappho, of the poetry of Sappho that, uh, I kept in Oxford in the Sackler Library, some of them still in the biscuit tins, the Huntley and Palmer sort of ginger nut tins that they were first put in at the turn of the 20th um, century. And they're, you know, they're the size of my fingernail, but, but incredibly methodically, if you piece those together, you can recognise a new line of, of Sappho. Um, and sometimes you can, you know, that's how you identify her work because there's a particular scribe that loved copying out Sappho. So you can kind right. of recognise the handwriting. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, uh, if I had my way, Sappho, sapphic love would be taught in all schools. And I, <laughs> I mean that in the most helpful way because she's, 
you know, what an amazing um, female poet, you know, 2,600 years old. And she's the first person to talk about love as being bittersweet, although right. she says she's a bit more realistic and she says it's sweet and then and then bitter. <laughs> but, but you know, it, uh, that sort of understanding of love and she talks about the fire, the passion sort of burning under your skin and your kind of longing for how you just can't get people out of your head, all of that. I, ge- I genuinely think that'd be so helpful to teach in schools to go, look, I know that you're feeling like this. There was this woman <laughs> 2,600 years ago on Lesbos who felt exactly the same. So, um, you know, it makes you realise you're not alone. And do you think, is there anything that's lost that you kind of know that there's there's a lot of it out there? Because there's things in Pompeii, aren't there? The libraries in Pompeii that are kind of, ch- the, the, the scrolls are all charred, but they're finding ways to read them and discover what they are. are you, yeah. Is there something you would love to find in one of those oh, libraries particularly? Oh, that- I mean, what a brilliant, what a brilliant question. You know, we will find all kinds of things. We will find new plays of Euripides. We, knew, we will find lost gospels. There's absolutely no doubt. So basically yeah. everything you hope, you will find, will be found at some point. I always love that about history. Unless it's been destroyed, it's there. Do you know what I mean? It's just lost somewhere. Yeah. It actually hasn't yeah. been destroyed. So it's just waiting It's waiting to be found. Yeah. Well, good. It's. It's. I think to, uh, looking at the human race via sexual desire is such, you know, such an important part of it. And it's often not... Uh, mentioned in history which is often seen as a very dry thing but obviously that's the it's one of the driving impetuses of humanity and it's so sort of important and to see I think that 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 point again you make in the book that you made just earlier as well about but the binary nature and the and the and the the different the acceptance of different lifestyles Mm. uh in at that time and the way it goes back and forth and things become forbidden and and it, there was a sort of freedom there that I think largely was a was a good thing. I'm not. Some of it seems a bit weird to uh to our <laughs> to our modernize, but it, it is fascinating that they that they had that discussion two three thousand years ago, and we're still discussing it now. Yes. Um. Uh, but hopefully, hopefully that means we. Does that mean that we just will never learn? That it just keeps going around in circles, and we keep fighting back and. Uh, losing knowledge and gaining knowledge yeah i don't think i don't think it's i don't think ever completely lose it we just we've we forget how to be wise sometimes don't we so yeah what a shame uh good well let's i'll ask you this is an emergency question that i think is very apt for you again this is quite a tricky one for someone who uh, has such a love of history but something i ask pretty much everyone recently is if uh, all the museums and art galleries in the world got together and said, we're going to give you one thing that you're allowed to take home and keep, one item, one, it could be a painting, but it can obviously be an historical artefact. Which thing would you like to uh, take home and earn from, own from all of the uh, Richard. museums in the world? I know it's difficult. It's a, I bet there's something there. Uh, well, you see, isn't it interesting? <laughs> Maybe what springs to mind. And it's not incredibly original, but I just do love her um so she is the so-called snake goddess from crete from minoan crete and possibly badly restored but this incredibly feisty creature who stands there grappling snakes with a bare breast these beautiful sort of erect black nipples (laughs) and uh you know this kind of little cinched in waist and staring out with coal rimmed eyes and I just love her. I tell you why I love her particularly because she's one of the reasons I became a historian. Because I remember our uh, uh, classics or history teacher 
putting a sort of rubbish slide for her, black and white scratched slide up kind of in the early 80s and saying, we've got no idea who she is. We don't know whether she's a goddess or a priestess or an ordinary woman, but she was buried as though she was radioactive waste. And I thought that is so I want to spend my life trying to find out. So I think she would probably be who I would take home and I would force her uh, <laughs> to tell me her secrets. But they were, I mean, they were heady times, those. They, they, I've just been on this Greek odyssey uh, that I'm doing. We've just been looking again at these amazing like vats of laudanum that they used to mix up. So opiates and alcohol, and some of them have been left in women's graves. And we know, so these aristocratic women of the time were mixing up this incredibly druggy brew and tripping on it and imagining, I'm sure that's where some of the stories of the myths come from, and also making people forget their sorrows. And a lot of those goddesses, so-called goddesses, priestesses, um, have opium poppies in their in their headdresses. So, um, you know, party girls. <laughs> well, I've been watching the uh, the Greek Island Odyssey uh, today. Uh, I've seen uh, a good chunk of the whole series. Good man. Uh, it's uh, very. It's still there's still uh, one more to come. Is it? Is, is, is there, is there, there one is more coming on out on Friday? Friday? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's all available on my five, so you can you can go and catch up on the uh, the whole thing if you're interested. I mean, it looks like a lot of fun to make. My, I, I should say, my mum and dad found out you're coming on and said that they love this uh, series. Say thank you so much to Mr. And Mrs. Uh, so they're, they're big fans. Oh. Uh, it looked like a. I mean, these things always look like fun, and I'm sure they're not as much fun as they look. But basically, it's you swanning around Greece on a yacht. <laughs> Eating nice food, getting drunk with nice people, flirting a bit with uh, all the handsome sailors and stuff. Yeah. It looks, it, look, it looked like quite a nice job to do. Not bad. It's, well, it's sort of because it's good. You've got the history, but it's also you're you're very much luxuriating in the beauty of the yes. landscape. I mean, it's in, it's in, I've never been to uh, Greece <gasps> at all or any of the Greek islands. Richard, uh, I know that is. Absolutely well, I like Italy. Well, I'm going to come to Greece. It's where it all begins <laughs> after this series. I have to say, I think the bookings to Greece, despite the slightly sad fact that nobody could get there until this weekend, has apparently gone absolutely soaring. Oh, I know. I mean, I'm so lucky to do it. I've been going there for 30 years. And so I've got lots of very, very, very old friends there. Um, so I kind of get a beautiful, warm welcome when I go. And for me as a historian, it's amazing because they go, welcome. And have a look at this, what's just been discovered. You know, so I get taken to some amazing things. Oh, no, it was a total, total delight. But it really, because we're sort of sort of retracing Odysseus's um, route from Troy back yeah. to his homeland in Ithaca. And I have to say, we thought we would try to make it not too easy for ourselves. So rather than just go in the summer, we had this bright idea of going over winter because we thought <laughs> then, you know, we'll experience some of those sea storms like Odysseus yeah. did. Well, and if you've been watching the show... You will. We did. Yes, you did. <laughs> we, we, we really did. So I mean, you're incredible. I have to say, you look incredibly blasé and brave. I thought as it was going. Oh, when the waves started going at six meters high, and you're still sort of lying on the front of this yacht, and, and then finally you come inside. I'm thinking. Yeah. I know. I was. People were being sick over the side. People were the being, sick. being sick. Uh, no, the cameraman was being face, sick. The sound, the sound man guy. was being sick. The cameraman <laughs> ended up helping to crew the boat, basically. So um, I know that was quite an adventure. Um, uh, but, you know, it is really interesting. Pe lots of people said, were you scared? Because they really were. You know, the swell was 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 massive and we were sailing at night. And, um, you know, it, it did feel quite, quite hardcore. And everybody was being sick, apart from me, the cameraman and my female director, who was sort of became, even though, 
actually none of us are properly British, but we came ridiculously British and just talked about if only we had a gin and tonic, it would, you know, everything would be completely fine. But in those situations of real crisis, you just have to go with the flow and you have to think there's a captain who has been sailing boats since he was six, who knows what he's yeah. doing. One of our other crew was an ex-naval captain. You just have to put your hands in their expertise and panicking is the last thing that you can do. So it wasn't weirdly, even though, you know, it was quite perilous, it wasn't scary, weirdly. And we had dolphins with us, even through the nights at sea. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, you know, un- unbelievable. But what you'll see in the next episode on Friday... What was scary is when I arrived in Ithaca. You haven't seen this episode yet, have you? No. There was an earthquake. I was. <laughs> Poseidon, who of course is supposed to be the god of the sea and earthquakes, he was punishing Odysseus, chasing him down and sending all these storms. And yeah. I was lying there in this sort of rather nice converted kind of olive press. And suddenly, you know, everything sickening. Have you been in an earthquake ever? No. Oh, my gosh. There is nothing like it. I mean, I tell you, it's the weirdest, weirdest feeling. And all the dogs start barking and then they all stop. Um, and, uh, okay, luckily nobody nobody was hurt, um, so it was okay. But that was, doing, you know, experiencing that and experiencing the sea storm, um, it really made me respect those sailors, those mariners of the ancient world. And it made me realise actually in a very visceral way why people wanted to tell stories about them as being the incredible adventurers and survivors and the temptations that were put in their way but you can imagine you know after that bloody storm honestly I've been very anti-Odysseus and thought he shouldn't have taken 10 years to get home to his wife <laughs> and he, kept, he sort of stayed on islands and had massages and you know sex yes. with goddesses for every night for seven years after that storm I did not want to leave the island I was on I really <laughs> thought it's got to stay here for a little bit well it's so long so i mean i think at school we you know we we the odyssey was discussed but like at middle school so i was pretty young in my mind the odyssey took place over like ten thousand miles i suppose because to take so long but it's but it, when you see when you see where you went it's not really it's no. just within a few islands so he's, he was really taking his time to get he was definitely home. definitely he was <laughs> definitely taking his time although there's a big um, i mean we didn't actually do it because um you know it's so speculative but there is also an interesting thought that actually what the odyssey is describing is the bit in greece but where you love italy as well and going right the way to sort of sicily in the far west and maybe even as far as sort of spain or gibraltar because i lost the references feel a bit a bit western in there but um, okay you know that would have been <laughs> i don't think any telly company would have had the budget to have us go all the way to water. <laughs> maybe i'll insist on it next time and how what is there any factual evidence of any of it being in any way true i mean the the is any of it true is the siege of troy uh, troy true well you know there were sieges of troy so, for 3,200 yeah. years ago, 100% definitely. And what I love about, so my first book was about Helen of Troy and actually looking at kind of what was what's real and what's um, what's fact and what's fantasy. And, you know, every year there is an, uh, a di- an archaeological uh, digging season. Something comes out of the ground that also appears in the Iliad or the Odyssey. So it's not saying that Homer's a historian. It's almost like history by accident. But what he is definitely doing is recording these kind of beautiful, important, epic oral tales 
of the imagination, but also of life. So, I mean, just sort of tiny examples, like um, Odysseus is described as having this uh, ball, uh, a helmet made of boar's tusks. And it's it's described in perfect detail in the way that they're kind of concentrically arranged and the leather that binds them. And mm-hmm. boar's tusk helmets exactly like they're described in the Odyssey, I mean, to the last centimetre, to the last millimetre, have turned up in graves from the period. Right. So we know that that's an example where it's definitely memory. It's not It's not fantasy. So, you know, call me old-fashioned, I don't think there was a whirlpool and, you know, Scylla and Charybdis, and, for instance, didn't exist, um, you know. Yes. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's just me being very mundane. Uh, um, but but I think that there is a lot that was I think there is a lot that was real as well. So um, yeah, so, yeah, so it's lovely. It's lovely tiptoeing that delicate line between, as I said, between what is history and what is myth. Yeah, no, it's well, it's a it's a it's a beautiful um, series, uh, and uh, everything's going a bit weird with my screen. Hopefully, it's all right. I hope everything's everyone's all right at home. Everything's I've just had some uh, technical issues here, but I think we're still broadcasting. Um, uh, what was I going to uh, talk talk about from this? Just threw myself off for a second there. No, but it, it is it is it's a it's a beautiful uh, series, and you do uh, there's a lot of great stuff in in the Greek islands that I had no idea about. So the actual uh, ruins, yes, of the are pretty impressive compared to stuff you will see in in Italy. You know, there's the the there's some pretty full-on palaces and mm. amphitheaters. Yeah, uh, totally. And con- where's where's the best place to start? What's the what's the best if you if you're going to go? What's the best yeah. stuff well, to I mean, see there? Pro- there's a load on Crete. I mean, so if you really love history, there's just so much. So there's you know Bronze Age history and Greek history and Roman and then Venetian and Ottoman. You know, it's there's a, there's a there's a really interesting kind of smorgasbord of history there. Knossos, the Palace of Knossos, so this Bronze Age palace, it's hard to beat that. It was it was pretty rubbishly <laughs> reconstructed by Arthur Evans. So don't think it's real if you go there, Richard, because it's all like <laughs> bright red columns and right. balls with sort yeah. of bright blue paint on them, which was which is all how he reconstructed it. But um but you know, that's an amazing, an amazing place. And these these cities you go into these sort of citadel palaces. And like in one room, so in Pylos, which is actually on the Greek mainland, there was over 2,400 wine cups just waiting to be used for a feast. So, I mean, what a kind of, how amazing. And again, we're talking 3,000, you know, over 3,200 years ago. So the level of sophistication is incredible. Delos is a beautiful island. If you go to party in Mykonos, I wouldn't go to Mykonos if I were you. It's sort of beautiful, but it's become a bit you know sort of run by i don't know it's just become very commercial but you can get on a boat and go to this um, uninhabited island of delos which was a sacred island and you could just spend 24 hours walking around there and you know in in and out of the ruins so no it is a very um it's a very rich culture and that there's this tradition of xenia which is like welcoming guests as if they're friends and the notion that you should always welcome a stranger and that is that comes right the way back from the time of Odysseus and we see it written about in the texts and the the, the reason they one of the reasons that they were very welcoming to strangers then is because the gods always shape-shifted so if you opened your door to somebody annoying it could actually be Zeus in disguise (laughs) so that's why you that's why you had to welcome them in Um, but that tradition of Xenia of welcoming strangers is totally alive and well in in Greece Mm. so you know that you're there are riches in terms of how you'll be treated as well as the archaeology 
And I think what's it's the thing that's slightly interested me again, the thought from the first episode is you, you're going, you accompany a guy, they're diving down to shipwrecks. Yeah. Uh, and you come, But so much of what we get from archaeology comes from a terrible disaster. I mean, yeah. Pompeii and Herculaneum are very good yes. examples of that, obviously. But the, you know, the, the richness you get as a, as an historian looking at those things, obviously it's not quite as ghoulish as waiting for something <laughs> terrible to happen but, and then jumping in because you've waited a couple of thousand years. Yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's an odd thing, isn't yeah. it, that you're sort of picking over the, a disaster in order to yes. to find out about what, what, what happens. Completely. I mean, totally. And uh, and we're always very, very aware of that. And, you know, you'll see in the in the Pompeii programme that we've done, I have to say I hate the Pompeii shows that do sort of, you know, town frozen in time. You think, well, yes. But it was also a death trap for yeah. um, for thousands, and you must, you know, we absolutely have to respect. Um, we always have to kind of care about those. Those, I mean, you have to care about everybody. I think whether you know past or present, but it really forces you to exactly as you say when you're um, dealing with, particularly obviously with human remains um, or with the remains of tragedies, and that, as you say, you know, what's on the seabed? It's basically a huge unexplored maritime museum so we where we were um in greece sort of very close to the uh, coast of turkey you know there are 54 ships that are wrecked and just in this tiny tiny little area and of course that tells us a huge amount about that world but you're right that's you know the crews of those 54 ships a few of them might have survived them the majority won't have done so um yeah so you've you but but you know if you if you if you kind of approach it from that point of view of respect, and I do a little sort of internal thing to the to, to people before I go in and poke away, because as you say, can you imagine for us what a nightmare it would be in 2,000 years' time for a historian to come and pick over, look at this messy study I'm sitting in now, and you know, to form an opinion <laughs> on me and my on my life from my remains, you know. So it's a it's a it's a kind of um, you know, it's quite a it's quite a high octane profession in a way. Um, yeah. So yeah, so you're no, you're right. You, but you have to you have to you have to genuinely you have to bear that in mind. As you you have to remember that they're people and possessions rather than just the past and things. I hate it when people talk yeah. about objects. They're not objects. They're bits and pieces that that belong to somebody. But you know, they do those. Tra- no, a tragedy like that where people haven't had the chance to if, if a volcano erupted on you now yes and you hadn't got the chance to die the apple, yeah. i hope it doesn't happen it'd be great for the podcast to be honest if it happens it would, it would. Uh, well, but i hope it doesn't hope, happen well as you know my fire alarm was going off just before <laughs> it was so that could have been it but you know we would capture you you know in the in the reality rather than in yes. the way you you know so a grave is the way you want to be perceived even you know even that is not it's, yes it's the it's the best of you isn't it no one's really yes putting, yes <laughs> putting your worst out. yes so to the amazing thing about Pompeii I suppose is it absolutely captures a city yes you know well, people fleeing from a city but basically a, a normal life almost yes captured so in that instant absolutely absolutely and it's like did you did your parents ever say so would people always used to say at home you know put on clean pants in case you're knocked over by a bus yeah. you're always like very most important thing so so yes you're right they are the, the, the this kind of um postcard from the past when a, a snapshot like that um uh, happens that is one of the reasons that Pompeii is so incredibly touching i mean i you know when i was there um oh, you know i get i got access to the storerooms and there's all these 
sort of random little things like a leather handbag that's decorated with little gold flowers sort of like you'd see in a kind of Gucci store today and a little pet monkey that's that's been left and then these paint pots which I have to say it's one of the few times I've trended on Twitter I tell you I never I'm just going to stop using Twitter whenever I post I lose I lose followers and if I just sit there or if I post pictures of Pompeian paint pots that's when I <laughs> trend it was really funny because it was um it was kind of early on ish in lockdown and Pompeii really was trending because I posted these images of these these um, amazing pots of pigments and then everybody was saying oh my god why is Pompeii trending is it because Vesuvius has erupted again so we had this there was a real sort of serious thing it's like no 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 it's just just a, just a few bits of paint but um yes yes it would be interesting so what would be You'd be captured. It'd be interesting, isn't it? You'd be captured yeah. mid... Well, we both would be mid... We would. I mean, like, I'd hate... There's so much weird stuff in this. I was just doing... Actually, I was doing Dan Schreiber's uh, uh, Instagram live show, which you did come up on because you were on the Museum of yes. Curiosity, I think. So yeah. he was talk, we, I mentioned that you were coming on and he was uh, talking very nicely about you. Oh. But So I've got loads of my most weird uh, stuff around me the objects that I needed for his thing but yeah this I mean this attic particularly is just full of all the junk of my many (laughs) years of making puppets basically so I realized when I had to collect my favorite objects or the objects that meant the most for my life they're nearly all puppets are they so that yeah so that just shows from the very beginning there was a little this is this is the first puppet I ever had that I remember doing it's a thing but I remember doing a uh a show to my my nan and my mum. Uh, this was a donkey, uh, and uh, and them really laugh. I was behind the sofa and they were really laughing. And I remember enjoying that feeling of the blood. They were obviously laughing at me for being a little stupid dick. <laughs> I didn't realise that. I thought I was getting a genuine laugh. Yes. They were laughing at me because I was being so cute. Yes. There was two of them. Were there two the at that one. point? Yeah, but uh, there was at least two. But yeah, he's somehow I managed to find him and he survived earless, unfortunately, yes. down. So if someone could find that and think that's well in that time. They had I know figurine that was a god exactly they had the they had the donkey the, the donkey figurine that brought great <laughs> luck turquoise to, <laughs> to comedians I know I've got I don't know if you can see on this kind of bed behind me I've got all the um somebody's just delivered all the cuttings from the um, from the Odyssey show so I would just look like this most horrific narcissist that all I did was read newspaper things about myself or the most famous but see if you were <laughs> but see that's what I, that, that thing I was talking about earlier about the fragments found if the, all the stuff that gets lost and nothing yes. gets found of it yes uh, it's just you know if your book if one of our books survived if emergency questions was the only book that survived yes. 5,000 years time people would assume yes uh, that we were the most important authors in the that's world true. and they wouldn't know about any of the other stuff they'd think it was just people asking stupid questions absolutely that's what they true were. well there we are well let's just kind of will a volcano on ourselves now, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Remembered for immortal. If I had to go, that's the way. I'd, that's the way I would oh, go. Oh, I don't I'd know. Like, I'd like to go. I'd like to be, and then you could make a funny shape. You could be doing oh, something. You could. Don't... It'd be funny for you know future stories to put in the plaster cast, and yes. you've come out and you're oh. you're playing with yourself or whatever you do. Don't, mate. Don't. I, unfortunately, I know fun. too much about how well how much they suffered before they died. Oh my god, they had time to feel fear. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. People talk about it being instantaneous. It absolutely wasn't. Anyway, poor poor sods. They'd have been dead now anyway. They are true. Screw it. Screw them. I I love the uh, the people I liked on. What I like again about this this the series is you're meeting lots of. It's as much about modern Greece as it is about uh, past Greece. So you're, you're going through a lot of the customs and stuff. But was it in Ikara the 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 uh, 
island where there's loads of old people because yes. they are the yes and you met you met a couple of 97 year old girl old ladies yes. <laughs> who were you know in very good shape i'd like to go and live on that island not because i'm obsessed with old women no uh because i'd like to live to be an old man i know eating a mediterranean diet that, it looked nice there oh, it was really nice i mean that yeah. was that was a really magic i'd never been there before and um it's and it's really interesting because it was communist for a bit i think it was one of those places that declared itself like a sort of independent state so it's got this slightly sort of magical wild and they hardly anybody wears watches like even young people don't wear watches and you say say well how do you get this well you know why would we need to wear a watch because we just do what's important in our day and then we go to sleep and they see as that is that is how so it's the most I think they just live so long because they've got zero stress because they're just kind of pottering yeah. around. No, that was that was really uh, that was there were lots of really special moments actually. And the Odysseus of Honey who has his hives and he goes yes. around by boat. Um, yeah, that was amazing. Well, and then they get they film you with all honey dripping off. They're they're using you, Bentley. <laughs> I don't know if you know they're they're using you as they know what they're doing. These directors all honey dripping <laughs> off your face. <laughs> They know what they're doing. Oh, she's a lovely lady kind of... director. So, you know. <laughs> she knows what she's yeah, doing. Yeah, we were honey She knows away. she's playing too. She's the same as the guys who did those Venus statues. They go, get Bethany to eat some sticky stuff. <laughs> See if it lands on her. Oh, my God. Well, I tell you that, I would happily do for any price. That Greek honey, <laughs> unbelievably delicious, as was the wine that I then pressed with my my kind of dry skinny feet and drank <laughs> oh yes that was that was a well you think you looked very nervous about drinking that was it just because it was you're drinking that you was it was it so i just squashed it, nice? it with my like sweaty oh, no, but that's it's your own feet it's my own, well i know i don't i don't suck my own toes you know so i kind of <laughs> i definitely was nervous and i also just lost it because it he wasn't it wasn't a double entendre but the the guy who <laughs> had the winery I had this thing in this, as you said, in this sort of ancient cup, and I was a bit nervous about drinking it. And he said, don't be afraid, put it all in your mouth. And I just, <laughs> oh, you know, it was just really bad. I just just lost lost the plot briefly. Well, you're, you're absolutely fantastic on these shows uh, and, and very enjoyable to watch. I, I'm, I'm very impressed with all your achievements. I mean, I didn't know, you know, I've known you for a long time and we haven't seen each other for a long time, but I've known you over the years and seen you a couple of times. I didn't know you were an OBE. You're an OBE. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. I actually had to come back get... from the Greek Odyssey in order <laughs> to pick up the OBE. And I'd I'd mistimed it. So I'm very brown. If you look in the photos, I'm very brown. And I borrowed everything. So nothing quite matches. And I'm like a bit sort of frantic. But yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm really chuffed with that because as we were saying right at the beginning, it's, you know, history wasn't fashionable when we were doing it. Everybody thought we were ridiculous and stupid. And it was, I had to really kind of fight I was the first female historian, I'm told, to do a history series on the BBC. And it was such a fight to get on with everybody going, oh, you know, who cares? And he'll take you seriously. And so, so um, yeah, so I'm pleased. And we get lovely letters from people saying they always thought they were history was boring and they weren't interested. And, you know, now they now they like it from the show. So that was a nice, it was a nice moment. Who did you get off? Who gave you the OB? Uh, Princess Anne. So that's she's one of the good ones. She is. She she's is. She's my favourite one, actually. There's. Uh, I I'm not a massive fan of Prince Andrew, but Princess Anne is. <laughs> Princess Anne's one. I've met her. Yeah, have at, you? when I went to I went to Buckingham Palace for a charity thing, and she and I chatted for her for her and Ben Shepherd from uh, Tipping Point. We all chatted together. Nice. <laughs> and uh, you know, and you know, it was impressive to meet Ben Shepherd from Tipping Point as well. So I was quite. 
bedazzled by that. But she seems quite together and quite. I mean, I don't know how much you get when you're just getting an OB. Do they have a chat with you? We or have do they a just long chat about Bronze Age women, actually. <laughs> With this real sort of like just kind of went off on one. And then I sat down and I was very excited because I was sitting next to Olivia Coleman, who I really oh. like. And everybody was a bit excited that she was there. So she was she was there. And also those amazing, the cavers who went and rescued the boys in Thailand. Oh, brilliant. Oh, wow. Who are tiny, of course. I hadn't really yes. sort of thought about that. They are giants in my mind, but of course they're tiny because they have to fit into poles. Was Olivia Coleman dressed as the Queen when she got her? If I'd been her, I'd have dressed up as the Queen from the she, from the Crown. She didn't actually dress up as the Queen from the Crown. I'd have no. done that. That would have been brilliant. She's got all the costume and stuff. She could have just done it. Yes. It would have been a laugh. <laughs> Princess Anne would have gone, oh, I get it. And it would have been funny. Uh, that's what I'd have done. They definitely, there was definitely a bit of banter going on between her and Princess Anne. There was definitely, <laughs> they were definitely mentioning something something along those lines. No, she's up. She's good. Anne's good. She does it properly. Yes. No, no, no nonsense. She, you're not going to fight. She's not going to end up in Pizza Express in Woking. She's a good girl. <laughs> she is, and she's doing the job properly. Yes, and I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of hers. Oh. So that is, that's all I'm going to say about, <laughs> about. That's it. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, well, look, we, I, I'm going to let you go in a little moment. Uh, what, what other stuff? Is have you got? Are you working on more books? So you've got you've got another book coming out. Yes, I am. Twenty nineteen, your last one. Yes, 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 I am. So I'm doing. Um, I'm writing a book about the seven wonders of the world and why they're wonderful. And being, you know, kind of, I I can't write history unless I go to where it happens. So I'm currently planning my trip to Iraq, which is interesting to say there aren't many there are not many of them remaining of the seven wonders other or are there no are they still they're still it's only there? only the pyramid of uh great pyramid at giza yeah. that's the only one that is really standing yeah. and all the others the hanging gardens of babylon we don't even know if they, we think they're in Nineveh rather than Babylon. So yeah, no, 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 not you have to use a lot of imagination, basically. <laughs> but that's, you're going to look at a place where it was before, yeah, and they go, exactly. Yeah, I, I can imagine what that was like. Exactly. The lighthouse was a lighthouse. Yeah, light, very good lighthouse in Alexandria. Um, Rhodes, the Colossus of Rhodes. Library, the library. Well, actually, that's not that officially. One? That was an. You're very. You know, that was an, an earlier selection. But was it? yes, yeah. But um, I, I play a lot of Civilization, so you know they often come up in Civilization on the computer game. Do they? You get the wonders of the world, yeah. But they're often most of them aren't things that are probably are the wonders of the world. Yes. So that's probably why I know. Yes. <laughs> well, so that's anyway. So that's my that's my book my book job, and then um and yes, and then I'm going um. I'm going back out into the world to do to do a big secret history history thing, which is always very odd that you can't talk about history because it's obviously happened. <laughs> but I'm doing a bit of a bit of a cheeky revelation. Um, uh, yeah, very soon. Oh, cool. Do you find? I mean, that's. I know you've got a family, but you must be away quite a lot to do these. Yes, do these shows. Is that because it's a similar in my in my job takes me away from home a lot if I. If I'm touring or whatever, not so much right around the world. Sometimes around the world. Yes. Is that is that tougher, or I'm never they're quite grown up? Your kids. They now? are. Well, you saw again before we started. They came and helped <laughs> with my technical. There's a little sort of flurry of daughters. Yeah. Whereas mine came up and sang you a song because she thought she was going to be um yes. my daughter. Last night she came into the bedroom and said, "I want to be in one of your shows. I want to sing a song. I've decided I want to be on the stage." I said, "That's good." And then uh, she came back three, two minutes later crying. Saying I can't sleep because I'm imagining people are throwing fruit and what if people oh, throw fruit and vegetables oh, at me? Oh. But then she heard I was doing this, so she came up to sing you a song and made up a little song about that. She made that song up. That wasn't a song. She made that up. She, that's she's so very, cool. she's very talented. Very uh, talented. Yeah, so mine, mine is, 
my my one's not so much use technically, no. unfortunately. No. As yours were. <laughs> she probably yours is, but, frankly. She's probably got a better <laughs> idea than us. Uh yeah. So yes, it was a it was a bit of a challenge being being away and um but you know, swings and roundabouts. So they they occasionally I took them with me and I, I did have a hilarious moment once when I'd been filming out in Sparta. And I went to meet my husband and my daughters and they'd taken a lovely young woman who looked a bit like my daughters to sort of help out while I was away. And I turned up this hotel and they thought that she was his wife and I was the mistress. So there was this terrible, like, <laughs> this mad, you know, dark-haired woman's arrived. She's claiming to be the wife. Of that. Quick, get the message out to him. But, um, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you know, it's it's we, we, we're a very, very happily family. We then go on these kind of crazy road trips together and they've come and translated Plato. You know, they, they, we've, they've, I've always involved them when that's how we've, that's how we've kind of got through it. But, yeah. Um, I think they can't wait to get rid of me now. They're kind of going up. I'm obviously so annoying through lockdown, climbing the walls, wanting to get back out on the road. Uh, Well, I'm glad that hopefully lockdown will be over and there won't be a. There's going to be a second one, Uh, but. Uh, hopefully you'll get out around the world. It's been very nice to see you again, uh, uh, even remotely. Uh, And uh, thank you for the many happy memories I have of you in Dirty Linen that will keep me going for a very long time. Um, uh, yes, well, do ch- everyone please check out uh, Greek Island Odyssey on Channel 5, on My 5 if you've missed it. Uh, Venus and Aphrodite is a great book, as are, I'm sure the other books as well. There's many more books to choose from, uh, all good subjects. And the seventh one is The World. I'm getting that one. Cool. You're going to do the audio book? Yes. Oh, that's what, I, I, what I'll ask you. Yeah. If you could have – this is my last question to you, and then you can go after you've answered this. Uh, if Obviously, audio books are quite a new thing, but if you could have any author from all of history – to read you their own books oh. on an audio book, which which who would you like to hear read their own books to? Oh, you? that is that's a really good one. I think it, that's a good. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it would have to be Socrates. Okay, <laughs> because <laughs> because I'm sure he had a really annoying voice. Do you know what I mean? He's one of those people you can imagine like being so clever that he's there's something really annoying about him. So I'd love to hear Socrates so I could be annoyed by by his voice. It would be interesting. interesting. It would be interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining oh, us. Good luck with everything, Bethany, you. and I will see you very soon. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Bethany Hughes. Thank you very much. Lovely. See you next week. We're with uh, Bill Al-Zafar next week. Please do tune into that. Goodbye. You have been listening to Rahalastapa with me, Rich Terring, and my guest, Bethany Hughes. Thank you to Pest for providing some musical accompaniment to this speaking now, which would otherwise be under just silence, which would be confusing and embarrassing for us all. I'd like to thank Twitch, Ian Twitch, and everyone at Twitch. I'd like to thank everyone at Ian Acast and Ian Acast himself. And I would like to thank Chris Evans, not that one, who has done fantastic work as always. I am indebted to him for what he has achieved. Um, thank you also to Ben Walker, who puts up the As It Occurs to Me every week for us and uh, helps us with the advertising stuff that we do. And we'll be back as full-time producer as soon as we are back in the theatres. Which, when will it be? Probably 2021, let's face it. Carry on listening to us and watching us on twitch.tv slash rkherring. This is a Sky Potato Fuzz and GoFasterStripe.com production. 
head to rahalastapa.co.uk for lots more information on this show. Stick a Kickstarter on the end of that address and you'll maybe be able to see our new Kickstarter if it has started by yet. Do chip in. All profits will go towards helping live comedy come back from this terrible, terrible year. When will 2020 end? Why is it still going on? Oh, it's not like just... Is that what happens when we do a new year? It'll all reset? I believe it is. Anyway, thanks for watching, you motherfuckers. And listening, rather. Now, go away. <laughs> <laughs>